Our scripture this morning comes both from the book of Proverbs and the book of Ephesians. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it, but the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul, and health to the body. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. Like a gold ring or an ornament of gold is a wise reprover to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him. He refreshes the soul of his masters. And then from Ephesians. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Therefore, having put away falsehood, Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind one to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Uh, good morning. Uh, Good to see so many of you here this morning. We're in the middle of a book, of series on the book of Proverbs about wisdom. And under the heading of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs talks about the tongue or words more than any other subject. And so we started last week to talk about this, this issue, and we said that whether we are wise or not depends more than anything else on how we use our words. And so we're going to look at it again this morning. Okay, And in Matthew 12, Jesus says... That on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. That is absolutely a frightening statement to me because I make my living with words. I uh, did a conference in Lexington, Kentucky yesterday where I had to talk for six hours. 
and then be here this morning to talk to you, hopefully for a much shorter period of time than that. Uh, and, and so you need to pray for me because I am in a, I'm in a place of great spiritual, you know, in need of great, of great discernment. And, and I want to say, in a, in a, in a, not in a place of great spiritual danger, but can, you, but can you just imagine? I mean, James says, you don't want to be teachers. Because teachers are judged more strictly than other people. Because words matter. And they make their living with words. So, so you know, those of us who are up here with words, pray for us. Because Jesus says, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word. He doesn't say that about your money or your time or your community service or your commitment to church. It's your words. He says every careless word, literally, lazy words. So Jesus is warning us about speaking without thinking first or speaking without realizing the power of words. He says we will be judged and either justified or condemned by our words. Now, Jesus isn't denying salvation by grace. I like the way D.A. Carson puts it in his commentary on Matthew. He says at the judgment, what we are is what matters. And our words, especially those to which we give no particular thought, reveal what we are. So if you want to know what's in a person's heart, if you want to know what they're made of, if you're dating somebody and you're trying to get to know them and figure out what is the deal with this person, pay attention to their words. Because words reveal the heart. Now, two types of people temperamentally that are are in this room. Okay, temperamentally and sinfully. There are, and I used these categories last week, say anything people and say nothing people. And last week I aimed at the say anything people And I said that wisdom regarding words in Proverbs means for them particularly fewer words or at least slower words. And so the power of words should should lead them to use their words very carefully. This morning I'm aiming at the say-nothing people like me. And so if words are powerful and if they have the power to heal and restore and give life, as Proverbs says, then we can't withhold them from one another. We can't be say-nothing people. Scripture is very clear. We're called to speak the truth in love. And so that's exactly what I want to talk about. It's why I have this passage from Proverbs chapter, or from, um, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4 here, because it's so clear there. And we're going to talk about what it means then for us to, to begin to be people. Last week it was that wisdom would make us quiet. This week is that wisdom would actually cause us to speak. But how do we speak truth and love to one another wisely? And I want you to see three things from both the, the verses in Proverbs and also this passage in Ephesians chapter 4 about speaking the truth in love. To one another. The why, the what, and the how. That's it. Okay, the why, the what, and the how. Speaking the truth in love to one another. Let's look at this, starting first with the why. Why do we need to commit to speaking the truth in love to one another? And this is especially why I wanted to include this passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Because it so clearly gets at how God has designed words to work as his people live life together. So you see, beginning in verse 11 down there. There is this formal function of words in the church. We're told that Jesus has given apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers, evangelists uh, to the church. And all of those offices have a teaching function. Their ministry is a ministry of word. And through their words, the saints are equipped, we're told, for ministry. And that word equip means to perfect. It also is translated to fully qualify. Uh, today being Veterans Day, and, and I meant to, and I just apologize. Uh, I, I just I just apologize, I forgot. But today being Veterans Day, I wonder, do we, I don't, you know, and this is terrible that I don't know, do we have any of you, are any of you veterans? If you're a veteran, could you could you just stand and let us recognize you? And, I mean, do you mind? I know that's awkward, but there you go. There's some guys. So, amen. 
We are, we are, and I meant to do this earlier, but we are grateful on a day like today where, where Blake even prayed for the blessing that is ours, the freedoms that are towards the freedom of speech that's ours, that has been protected by uh, the people uh, who go uh, to battle when necessary to protect our freedoms. So thank you. We're grateful for you. Uh, but this word uh, that we, that we you know, translate here, equip, uh, those of you who've been to battle, you know that when a young man joins the military, they don't dress him in ammo and send him to the battlefield right away. He has to go to basic training. He has to learn military procedure and discipline. He's taught how to fight, how, to, how the chain of command works. There's a highly structured, exhaustive training program he has to complete. And once he's done, he's given a gun and a lot of cool high-tech equipment, right? And then he's sent out to battle. But only after he's been trained in the proper skills and only after he's been outfitted with the proper equipment. The military doesn't send men to war without training and without equipment. They equip their soldiers for what they will face once they're out there. And that's what this word means. The job of pastors and teachers then is to equip the saints, to give them the training and the equipment they need to be successful in their ministry, in their work. However, unlike the military, we have one tool with which we... I have one tool. And this is, this is what's so hard about what we do, what I do. I have one tool by which I am told I am to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and that is words. So pastors and teachers use words to equip the saints, but equip them for what? Paul goes on to say, verse 12, for the work of ministry. Well, but what is that? Well, then look at the next phrase, for the building up of the body of Christ. And that's the image I really want to try to get at. And it's the image that dominates this passage. If you look down at verse 16... Uh, Paul uses the same imagery again, same Greek word, and then again down in verse 29. So three times in this Ephesians chapter 4, Paul refers to this building up, which means something like to strengthen or to make healthy, to encourage or to edify. But the image is to build, edify. You, You hear the word edifice, right? Edify, build up, strengthen. And so as Jonathan said earlier, the church then is a house, or maybe better, a temple, that God dwells in by his spirit. And I'm referring, obviously, to people, not to bricks and mortar. The church is a continual construction project, and the goal is spiritual maturity and flourishing. Okay? So, and it's going to sound, I'm doing my best, the fly went by impersonation this morning, it feels like, right? So, pastors and teachers equip the saints for the ministry of building one another up towards spiritual maturity, but how? Well, look there again. If you go down in the passage, you see uh, where he begins to describe what spiritual maturity looks like in verse 13 and then verse 14. It, it, you know, if, if we do not grow up into mature manhood to the measure of the stature of fullness of Christ, then we become like children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine uh, and by craftiness in, in, deceit, in deceitful schemes. So there's this shiftiness that happens. And then he breaks into this description in verse 15 and says, rather, in other words, the way this doesn't happen, the way that sort of thing does not happen in the church is rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. And again, down in verse 29, therefore, right? Excuse me, verse, verse 25. Therefore, put away falsehood. Let each of you speak the truth to his neighbor. And then in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as 
good for building up. So what we learn is there's not only a formal function of words in the pastoral office, there's also an informal and pervasive function of words in the church. The church does ministry to one another through words, speaking the truth, engaging and building up one another. So pastors and teachers use words to equip the saints to use words to mutually encourage and build one another up towards spiritual maturity and flourishing. That's what Ephesians 4 teaches. And that means this. If we don't learn the skill of speaking the truth in love, the church's growth will be stunted. Because it is loving words, loving words, that build the church towards spiritual maturity. Now, one correction. Okay, when I say loving words, I do not mean flattery. Okay? You've got to be careful. I mean honesty. Not flattery, honesty. There's a difference. Proverbs warns, and we've seen this about flattery. Friends don't flatter. Friends are honest. And, and I, the difference, I thought a little bit about this this week. Flattery appeals to a person's vanity, and that's why it's so dangerous. So a true friend who speaks the truth to you helps you overcome your vanity in two ways. And here it by first, by encouraging words that help you put your confidence in God. So here's how you know how you have a true friend, okay? A true friend, a compliment that comes from a true friend will always have the ring of, isn't God faithful? Rather than, aren't you amazing? Right? There's, there's a difference. The, the, a true friend's words, the, the compliments, the encouragements, the positive things they say in your life will always have the ring of, God is faithful, a lot more than, boy, you know, you, you are really impressive. Because what a true friend is hope, helping you overcome your vanity by encouraging words that, that help you put your confidence in God and, as we saw last week, by wounding you to wake you up to spiritual danger. That's the best summary I can give you. When Paul talks about speaking the truth in love to one another, he means just that, that we are to offer one another words that encourage without appealing to pride and vanity and words that wound without crushing the spirit. Words that encourage without appealing to pride. Words that wound without crushing the spirit. So if you flatter, which is flattery is loving words with no truth. Or if you gossip or slander or complain about someone to other people, which is truth but without love, then you're not building up. You're actually tearing down. Look at Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up. If you want to rule, if you're a rule person and you want to rule to guide the way you use words, there it is. No corrupting talk. That doesn't mean, as I was taught as a kid, curse words. Right? Although curse words probably are corrupting talk. Although sometimes, never mind, we won't go there. I'm just going to keep going. Right? Sometimes it just, there's no other way to say things, right? I, this is one of my one of my measures of people coming out of out of legalism to the gospel of grace is I'll have people come to me and say I've started cussing in my head, and I'm like, oh, you're starting to grow in the gospel, right? Just be careful about how that stuff. So if that offends you, please come see me afterwards. I'll explain. It's just a joke. Nevertheless, corrupting words doesn't necessarily mean it. What the what the word means is is words that are opposed to the words that build up. So the corrupting words there are words that tear down instead of build up. So what we learn is words matter. 
The words our pastors and teachers give us matter. So we should pay attention, right? The words we speak to one another matter. And if you want to know just how important words are, look at what Paul says are the markers of spiritual maturity in verses uh, 13 and 14, and you'll then consider the opposites. So just a number, a couple of things here. He says, Paul says that words rightly spoken, verse 13, lead to the unity of the faith. In other words, the mechanism for unity and brotherly love and affection in the church is words. Which is ironic if you start to think about it, because words are really the way we really often cause trouble and mess things up. But if you take a situation where there's hurt feelings or distance or just plain old anger, it is almost 100% of the time that way because there are words that have gone unsaid. And there cannot be in marriage or friendship or any other relationship intimacy without honesty. So Paul's making the argument there that if we refuse to speak the truth to one another, or if we speak the truth but not in love, the result will be division and unity in the church. But not just division and division and disunity. Not just division and disunity, but also there's a second, there's four actually, I'm only going to talk about a couple, but the second is bad theology. So he goes on to say, the informal but pervasive ministry of words in the church Secondly, it leads to theological orthodoxy, what Paul calls the knowledge of the Son of God there in verse 13. So pastors and teachers, but community group leaders and kids worship teachers and discipleship group leaders and, and all of these people, their words help us form a theology, and the opposite of a good theology is a bad theology or a weak theology, and spiritual maturity and flourishing is impossible without good theology. Right? But it's words. It's through words that we develop good theology. And the same is true of Christ-likeness there in verse 13. That we might attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The way we grow and mature and, and are strengthened in our faith is through words. And also the way we get fortitude, the way we persevere, the way we keep from being tossed to and fro is through friends who offer one another words that encourage without appealing to pride or words that wound without crushing the spirit. So that's the why. Because words are important. Without loving words, the church is destined to be anemic. And I would say the church in America is anemic because we do not know how to love with words. But secondly then, what does speaking the truth in love look like as we offer it to one another? So last week I said, okay, so that's the why, now the what. And last week... We said the wisdom regarding words and Proverbs means fewer words and slower words. And I said, for those of you say anything people, you strong, combative, truth-teller types, wisdom means fewer words and slower words. But let me shift to those say anything people, those sweet, kind, non-confrontational, selfish people. I thought that would get a little more rise. What does wisdom regarding words and Proverbs mean for them, for us? And I have two commandments from Proverbs for them also. Just as to the say anything types, wisdom means fewer words and slower words. For the say nothing types like me, wisdom regarding words and Proverbs means softer words and smarter words. Okay, let's look at each of those. Okay. Proverbs talks about soft words. Look at a number of the Proverbs I've, I've listed here. Uh, 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Again, 15.4. 
A gentle tongue is a tree of life. And then down 16, verse 24, a gracious word. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. body. Now, these are all words of confrontation and rebuke. Right? This is, all of these Proverbs are refer, referring to speaking the truth in love, saying hard things to one another, but doing it gently. A soft word turns away anger. It's contrasted in that verse with the harsh word, the word with an edge, the word that inflicts emotional and psychological pain upon the person. And here's what Proverbs is saying. It's saying anytime you have to say hard things to people, it's dangerous. But if you use soft words, you can diffuse the situation. But see, angry words, harsh words, loud yelling, words with epi-emotion, right? They provoke, they stir up anger in the person you're talking to, contrasted with gentle words, soft, calm, you know, soft-spoken words, diffuse anger. And so the wise person is the person, and this is the kind of person, this is who you want as your best friend. The wise person is the person who can zing you, but the calmness of their voice and the compassion in their eyes or their posture, they zing you, and it takes you like 30 seconds to realize they did it. Right? Wait a minute. Because soft words get to the issue, but they turn away wrath. They diffuse. They quench the wrath. And that's what makes it wise. A gentle tongue, we're told in verse 4 of of Proverbs 15. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. So harsh words stir up anger. Soft words diffuse, diffuse it. Harsh words fracture and break the spirit. Soft, gentle words heal. Down in 1624, gracious words are like a honeycomb. Harsh words stir up anger. Soft words diffuse. Harsh words fracture and break the spirit. Soft words heal. Harsh words are bitter. They're hard to swallow. Soft words are sweet like honeycomb. And the image there in that verse is that words are like medicine. And the problem with medicine, as all parents in the room know, especially in trying to administer it to their children, is typically it tastes terrible. And so literally every parent has a story where at 2 o'clock in the morning you have the child pinned down and you are literally pouring the medicine down their throat. And some, you know, are blowing, trying to... Right, because there's some old wives' tale that says if you blow in their face, they swallow. I don't know. It never seemed to work. But, you know, I mean, literally, you're on the floor, and it takes two of you, and you got them pinned down, and you have to to literally, you know, pour the medicine down the kid's throat. So a parent's best friend is medicine that tastes good. Right? Praise God for amoxicillin. That stuff is like candy. The kids love it. A gracious word, a, a, a kind, unselfish word. That's what that word means even if it is hard to hear. A gracious word, even if it's hard to hear, is like medicine that tastes good. So wisdom regarding our words means softer words, gentle words, compassionate words, but secondly, smarter words. Smarter, not just softer, but smarter. What do I mean? Look down at Proverbs twenty-five, eleven. A word fitly spoken is like, Apples of gold in a setting of silver, like a gold ring, like the cold of snow in the time of harvest. And the parallel in Ephesians 4 is, in verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. And then this phrase, as fits the occasion. So there it is, smarter words, apt words, suitable to the occasion, 
appropriate, well-timed. So it's not enough just to say, I'm going to speak the truth in love. We need wisdom to know when and how specific to be and what tone we should use and all these things. So again, we're back to wisdom. And what you have to do is you have to go back to everything we've already said in this series about wisdom. And you have to apply it to speaking the truth. Because wisdom regarding our words, as we offer them to one another, is that they would be soft and they would be smart. Okay, but lastly, we need to come to the end. How? How do we do this? How do we do this? Okay, if that's what we're to do, if that's why we're to do it, if that's what we're to do, how, how then do we go about doing it? In Galatians 6.1. Uh, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, and I don't have it printed for you, but you, you might know the verse. Uh, we're told very very clearly that if somebody is caught in sin in the church, that, the, that we are to confront them. We're to rebuke and speak the truth and love to them, but we're to do it gently. So Paul is very clear. If there's, if there's sin, go to the person and, and correct them, but do it always, do it gently. Actually, it says restore them, but do it gently. And the word restore means to reset a bone that has been broken. So... Sometimes when somebody falls and breaks their leg and the bone gets dislocated or it begins to grow back improperly, you know this. The only way to actually heal it is to re-break it and then reset it properly. And what Paul's teaching us in that passage is that when we get spiritually dislocated or unhealthy, we need to intervene in one another's lives. And that intervention often involves a confrontation. Truth. Right? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. But Paul's very clear. Every Every confrontation among Christians should be gentle. It should be truth spoken in love. And when you, when you really put it in that, you know, if you frame it that way, you immediately see that we face a real obstacle in that work because temperamentally and sinfully, we all tend to be on one of two sides of what Paul is saying faithful ministry of words looks like. We are either people who speak the truth but not in love, or we love, but without ever speaking the truth. And it's a function of our temperament and the way sin works in our temperament to make us unwhole. That is, we are all naturally and sinfully either, and these are the categories again, say anything, people. And those are those combative, reckless, harsh, too quick to speak, overly critical. And I've been asked, and yes, I do have a list. If you want to know which side of this you're on, I probably could tell you. Most of you anyway, right? Because people said, were you talking to me last week? Well, actually, let me check my list. Yeah, you're on the list for last week. Right? And if you don't know, just ask somebody. They'll be able to tell you which side of this you're on. Not just me. And then there are the say-nothing people, the sweet, cautious, compassionate, but overly permissive people. And neither of those personality types get this work done. See, to speak the truth, to confront, to rebuke, but to do it gently and aptly, you need enough courage on the one hand to risk people's dis- disapproval. In other words, you need to be secure enough and to have an emotional wealth that means you can live with people being angry with you. So the obstacle for these people, and this is me, is fear. Fear taints your love. Because see, if I'm making a wreck of my life and you're not willing to come talk to me about it because you're afraid of how I react, then your main concern is not loving me, it is protecting yourself, and that's not love. Love without truth isn't love. Love without truth is self-preservation. Say nothing people need a spiritual power to help them overcome their fear. But at the same time, to speak the truth, but to do it gently, you need humility alongside your courage that softens your words 
and makes your honesty gentle and sweet and therefore persuasive, as Proverbs says. So the obstacle on this side is pride. You see, the problem with pride is pride taints your honesty. You might be speaking the truth, but if it's too harsh or if it's too quick or if if it's at the wrong time or if it's in the wrong manner, if it's unwise, if you're leaning on your own understanding, which is the opposite of speaking aptly, it taints your honesty. The honesty is coming from your self-will. It's not motivated by love for the other person. And there's an element, however so small, of self-interest. You want to be right. And you want the person to know you're right and they're wrong. And, but you see, truth without love, selfish truth, isn't truth. It's always tainted. It's always jaded. So truth without love is always distorted and it harms and destroys rather than doing good. So say anything, people need a spiritual power to drain them of their pride and self-righteousness. So where are we going to get the spiritual power? Whether you're a say-nothing people or person or a say-anything person, where do you get the kind of heart character you need to excel in the ministry of words because this is this is we're ta- this is supernatural so where do you go where does it come from well if you're here this morning and you're not a christian you're an irreligious person i want to be your friend and tell you you won't excel in the ministry of words because irreligion is love but with no truth so irreligious people value self-expression and freedom and the one no no for irreligious secular types is intolerance. The ultimate value is tolerance. And what irreligious secularists typically mean by tolerance is you can't say no. You can't tell someone you're wrong. And it really is just the logical consequence of the denial of any absolute transcendent truth. If there are no absolutes, then there is no standard to judge things by, which means anything goes. So there is no right and wrong. And therefore, who are you to tell me how I should live my life? And what happens is irreligious people are often very nice people, a lot nicer than Christians, to be honest. They pride themselves on being loving and affirming and tolerant, but they fail with the truth. And love without truth isn't love. If you want, if you want just to see the outworking, you don't have to look very far. And I don't want to be the old man who's kind of coming down on, you know, the younger generations because that annoyed me when I was. I'm still a part of the younger generations, but, but we are we are witnessing the ascendancy of the first generation in our American society to be raised under a thoroughly secular and irreligious worldview. And if you want to know the consequences of the worldview, pay attention to the way. Most 18 to 25-year-olds live their life. They were raised in an environment of all affirmation, no confrontation. And should we be surprised then that we complain about the sense of entitlement and yet no responsibility and accountability that young people, and that's a generalization, not all young people, but some young people live with, okay? Because irreligion can't get the work done. But the power doesn't come from religion either. And that may surprise you to hear that. But religious people are the polar opposite of irreligious people, right? Religious people are often harsh, arrogant, self-righteous, condescending, because religion is truth but with no love. Because religious people see themselves as the good guys and everybody who disagrees with them as the bad guys. And I need to define what I mean by religion to make sure you understand. You see, a religious person believes that God loves and accepts them because of their good works or their good theology. And because of that, they use truth to belittle others and point out their faults and prove all the ways they're bad because to to point out how someone else is bad makes me feel good. So neither irreligion or religion produce the kind of truth-telling Proverbs in the whole Bible says is so important. 
So the solution has to be something else, and in fact it is, and I am a preacher this morning and every Sunday, I hope, of the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Savior. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is the power source for the very thing that both Proverbs and Ephesians calls us to. And one little phrase in this passage at the very bottom. Paul concludes all he says there in Ephesians 4 about speaking the truth with, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be kind to, oh, that the church would pay attention to these words. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ. See, that's the standard and that's the power source for all of our, for every command. As God in Christ. God is a God of truth and love, and that presents a problem for him. His truth demands that he punish sin. His love requires that he forgive and show compassion. And so there's a tension. How can he be a God of justice and a God who forgives? How can he be just and the justifier of the ungodly? And the solution to the tension is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because you see, in Jesus, God did not overlook truth for the sake of love and didn't love at the expense of truth. The cross is where God's truth and his love meet in perfect harmony. The cross puts God's truth on display. The wrath of God coming down against human sin and rebellion. The cross also put God's love on display because his wrath came down but upon a substitute so that he could turn to his people in forgiveness, not treating them as their sins deserve. And so it is the gospel of Jesus where we see the glory of God who is full of grace and truth. And if the cross is at the center of our self-understanding as individuals in a community of faith, then only the cross has the power to form us as a people who can be brutally honest and say hard things to one another, but always with gentleness and compassion. And here's how. See, and we talk about this all the time, right? We're rehashing this morning, but we need, we need to go over this over and over and over again because I'll be honest with you. I've not learned very much over four years, and I really, if I could be your friend, there's a lot of work for us to do, let's just say, right? See, if you're a say-nothing person like me, This is how you get the courage, the emotional wealth you need to excel in speaking the truth. Look at how God loves you in Jesus Christ. Let it fill up your heart so much that you won't need others to be happy with you. And you can risk their disapproval. But if you're a say-anything type of person, like I wish I was, this is how you get the humility and gentleness you need to excel in speaking the truth in love. The way you say hard things to others but gently is to remember that you're a sinner too. So every Christian confrontation is one sinner confronting another sinner, and that means there's no, never an excuse for self-righteousness. If you forget you're a sinner, that's when words become harsh and condescending. So look to Jesus hanging on the cross for your sins. Your sin did that. So with eyes of faith, look to the cross until it melts your heart and makes your words soft. Either way, the cross is the power for us to use our words in wisdom the way Proverbs tells us. Fewer words, slower words, softer words, smarter words. So that the church might be built up uh, for the glory of God. For the sake of the gospel in our city and world. That's what we hope. And so let's pray that the Spirit would come and do just that. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, we do pray that you do this great work among us by the power of your Spirit. And we confess all of the ways that we have fallen so short of the command that you give to us that we would be people who speak the truth in love to one another. 
And it seems in my own life, every time I get the courage to speak the truth, I mess it up because I don't do it in love. And, and, and every time I'm overwhelmed with love, I can't get over my selfishness and my need for the approval of the other person to, to do, well, do good to them by speaking the truth to them. I just mess it all up all the time. And so thank you, Lord Jesus, for the promise of your Spirit who would come into my life and begin to form into me the very character. He's the Spirit of Jesus, that he is... He is, um, he is the one who is to shape in me the very character of my Savior. And I long for him to do that work in me and in my friends, that we might become a church who, with clear apprehension of the power of words, would use our words wisely so that we might build one another up, so that we might uh, become a church that is, is um, mature, full of wisdom, and outfitted for the work that you've given us to do in our city and world. That's what we so long for. But we realize in both, in both ways we've talked about, it requires, in this work of speaking the truth to one another, it requires that we take up our cross and follow you. So as we sing these, these, this song together this morning, would you come and produce in our hearts a spirit-generated supernatural willingness to take up our cross and follow you in the way we use our words towards one another. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as God in Christ. So look to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and see there uh, the love of God um, and the justice of God. The justice of God satisfied that the love of God might be put upon his people. And then take up your cross uh, and follow him uh, as God in Christ. So receive then the words of this benediction as the food for your souls. Uh, And then... With the power of the Spirit given to you by the words that God offers to you in the gospel, then go and use your words to bless and not to harm, to build up and not to tear down, uh, to restore and to heal, and not to crush and break. Receive the benediction. Uh, May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.